Hey guys, this is Khaldun from Logically Faithful. I'm so excited about this uh, third season of uh, Logically Faithful, and I'm looking forward to having your feedback and your interactions as well as your reviews to help the show continue doing what it's doing and to reach a maximum amount of people so we can encourage, inspire, and equip them. With your help, we can make that happen. This particular uh, section of season three is on a topic I, I, I gave, or it's a lecture I gave at Calvary Church of Oakland on finding the peace of God in the pieces of life. Hope you enjoy it. Once again, I do appreciate your feedback. Good morning. There was a little boy, and he had some wonderful marbles. And across the street from him lived this little girl who had some amazing candy. He always wanted some of her candy, but he loved his marbles. So one day he went up to her and asked her, Can I have your candy? She said, Sure if I can have your marbles. And he said, okay, let me think about it. So he went home to pray. And in the middle of the night, he got up, put his marbles out, pulled out the best marbles from the pack. The shiniest ones, the glossiest ones. And kept them under his pillow. The next day, she came and gave, her all, gave him all her candies. And he gave her his marbles. But that night, he couldn't sleep. He kept thinking to himself, I wonder if she gave me all the candy. He had no peace because of the way he dealt with others. He had no peace because he kept asking himself, am I getting the short end of the stick? Are there things in my life that I need peace for? And I'm not getting it. I'm not getting it from my friends, my family, my culture. I might not even be getting it from church or even God. And I'm always wondering, feeling guilty. Why am I doing all this? Is it some kind of cosmic joke? I need peace. We all need peace. I need peace. And if you are somebody who needs that peace, this is a message for you. As much as it is for me. We live in a world of weapons of mass destruction. Facebook and Twitter, Instagram and Pinterest, Snapchat and YouTube, Netflix, movies, sports, and on and on it goes. Adox Huxley said, we have an infinite appetite for distractions. And Pascal said that man cannot stay quiet in his own room because he has to deal with himself. And when we deal with ourselves, we feel the lack of peace because we're not made to be alone. So we fill our lives with distractions or we go back to those toxic relationships in our lives to fill the emptiness within. Again, it's a distraction. Or we could be watching the news daily where the media is bombarding us, shoving down our collective throats, the constant deaths of the COVID-19 epidemic over and over again till you go to a point of psychological psychosis. Or you could go to the other extreme and see how the media is suppressing the opposite views 
on this issue, Facebook, Twitter, and others, and go to that other extreme. Either way, it doesn't bring peace. We need peace. So turn with me to one of the greatest books in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. So if you have your addictive device, yes, the device, the phone is actually more addictive than heroin, by the way, according to recent research. Um, if you have an app, one of the best ones I recommend is YouTube. Not YouTube. I don't want to recommend that one. But you can still check YouTube. They actually have Bibles on there. Uh, it's version, Or the ESV version. You can download that. It's wonderful. Let me begin to read and follow along with me. I'm in Isaiah chapter 57. And I'll start with verse, verse 15 and we'll go to 21. And hopefully we'll find some peace in the pieces of our lives through this. For thus saith the Lord, the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity and whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit will grow faint before me in the breath of life that I have made. Because of his iniquity, of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him and hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his heart. And I have seen his ways, and I will heal him. I will lead him and restore him and comfort him and his mourners, creating the fruit of his lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. I think that's actually a country song too. But there is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord God. I struggled with this a lot. Because I know some people who do not know God and don't want to know God who seem to have a lot of peace. I teach world religions, and when I read about the Buddhistic and mystical theologies in the East, their whole paradigm is about peace in the meditative stance. So what is God talking about here? Let's dive deep and see if we can get something out of it. In verse 17, God says, Of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry and I struck him, I hid my face and was angry. Getting angry, contrary to popular opinion, is not wrong. Letting anger consume you where it flows like a burning flood within you. That you're not able to see beyond the red of your eyes. At that point, you become a wrathful person. And that's actually one of the seven deadly sins. But controlled anger, justified anger, is biblical. Paul tells us, the apostle, to be angry and do not sin. For sinful anger is common and must be regulated and put away. But justified anger is necessary for justice. 
There is righteous anger as God has over injustice, greed, lust, murder, lies, slander. The unborn, over 60 million children aborted since Roe v. Wade, nearly 1 million per day. Ethnic and economic injustice, black poverty rates are double that of white poverty rates around the world, specifically in the United States, at a rate of 2.3% extra, that's a double rate. Sex trafficking, human slavery, adultery, abandoned refugees, 2.5 domestic workers in the Middle East alone, we're talking about primarily women, have their passports taken from them and work in indentured slavery for decades until they get back to their own families. Persecution of Christians in the Middle East, Afghanistan, North Korea, Nigeria. We are not to ignore the ex-slaughter of Christians. 50,000, 70,000 Christians killed according to international Christian concern in the last decade in the West African nations alone. God has a right to be angry, and so do we over injustice. Matter of fact, I think there's something wrong with you if you're not getting angry when you see a child being abused or people taken advantage of. God is justified in his anger. And what does God do? He strikes. He prevents evil by attacking it. Sometimes he permits it. That's a whole different discussion. I hid my face and was angry, it says in the text. God punishes. Yes, he does. He brings down wrath upon the unjust. In our watered-down feminist-type theology that's allergic to divine vengeance, the judgment of God doesn't fill fit well with a soft, therapeutic, best life now theology of nonsense Christianity. There is a lot of blessing here, but not a curse, not truth, not justice. Jesus Christ becomes an effeminate mama's boy rather than the warrior that he said he will come back as. He came first as a child in pampers, but he will return as a warrior to bring justice. The common politically correct idea, and even in some theologies, that God would never bring this upon us. Only the devil brings that. Really? Who sent the cataclysmic noetic flood that wiped out all life on earth? It's breathing life. Who destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? Who shook the earth with earthquakes and swallowed up sinners? Who sent the plagues of Egypt? I got news for you, it wasn't the devil. The devil is like a flame, he burns. But he doesn't hold a candle to God. Yes, God punishes sin, either now or later. But notice in the passage, there is hope. He hides his face, though, before he does that. And actually, I think that's actually the worst type of punishment. It's the type where couples get into, where one of them gives a silent treatment to the other for days or weeks. Being alone is the most terrifying thing there is because that's actually what hell is, to be ever abandoned. God turns his face, and this is what happened to Jesus on the cross where he cries out something that makes theologians pull their hair out or scratch their head if they don't have any. What are you doing? Jesus saying, God, why have you forsaken me? Yes, he said it because that is what happened there on the theological God turns his face for a reason and for a season until we come back. But I have a point here, point two. First, God is holy, point one. Point two was, and of course, you have to have three major points in a biblical sermon, right? Because that, that has to be. 
That's, 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 uh, that's written somewhere in the Bible, right? Anyway, uh, point two, God is merciful. All right, so we have the judgment of God, the holiness of God, but God is merciful too. He says, I have seen his ways. He has seen your ways. He's seen what you watch at 2 a.m. He's seen what you think about in the store. He's seen where you go when nobody else sees. He knows where your thoughts are or where your heart is. He knows. But he still is there. He says, I will heal him. The text says, verse 18, I will lead him and restore him and comfort him and his mourners. When somebody suffers, the family suffers too. I had lost two cousins this last couple months. One was 38, one approximately 41. Immediate just death. Heart attack and the other was unknown. The families are grieving deeply. God says here, the mourners, he knows that when you suffer, the people around you suffer too. He says, creating the fruit of his lips. Peace, peace to the far into the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. So one of the ways, one of the major ways the merciful God calls us to peace is by worshiping him. So I'm a professor. I'm not a preacher or a pastor or a priest or the son of one. So bear with me. The vast majority of people I spend time with are secular. Meaning they have no need for religious ideologies or positions or spiritual nonsense, as they call it. We don't need to worship like you. We have it all together. Really? One of my favorite passages in all literature comes from David Foster Wallace, himself a skeptical atheist. Wrote the following in a Kenton address in 2005. Listen to this. Here's the weird thing, he said. From the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everyone worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the competing reason to choose one sort of God over another, whether it's Jesus Christ, Allah, Yahweh, or even the wicked mother goddess, or the Four Noble Truths, or some invaluable set of ethical principles, it's pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, they're where you tap your real meaning. You will never have enough. Never have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time starts showing that, you will die a thousand deaths before they finally mourn you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified in myths and proverbs, epitaphs and parables and skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is to keep the truth in front of our consciousness. Worship is power. You will end up feeling weak if you worship, excuse me, worship power and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid and always feel you need more. Worship your intellect and you will always feel inadequate, a fraud on the verge of being found out. They're the default headings of our lives. They're the kind of thing that we gradually slip into day after day, moment by moment, without realizing it. Everyone worships. The question is, what are you worshiping? God says, come to me 
And I will give you a peace that surpasses all understanding. What does that mean when we worship God? Archbishop William Temple said the following, Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of our conscience to His holiness, the nourishing of our mind by His truth, the purifying of my imagination by His beauty, the opening of the heart to His love, the surrender of my will to His purpose. This is all gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion our, our nature is capable of. Worship is a whole gamut and a holistic experience of life when you do it to the right object. Tozer said the most important thing about a man is what he thinks about God. Why? Because God is the most important thing. So what you think about God is the most important thing about you. There's a fascinating book the author escapes me called America's Four Gods. They talk about evangelicals and Christians and Orthodox Catholics in general who worship God, but different forms of God. Because the root is not in the ancient scripture itself. We need to go back to the source rather than listen to pastors, readers, books, podcasts, and others that are all wonderful and great. But the source has to come first, which is the primary document, the ancient scriptures, the most historically reliable book in the ancient world. Finally, peace. The text, go back to verse 20. But the wicked are like the tossing sea. This image is amazing, by the way. For it cannot be quiet. Its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. When I was a kid, we used to go to um, a forest preserve outside our home where our parents told us not to go, of course. Um, There was a, um, a pond in the back that was deep. And we'd go there and it was quiet. We'd take a large... Uh, sticks that we'd find and we turn up the water. The stuff that comes up is amazing. Some of it was alive <laughs> and crawling. God shakes up our lives and then toss, he toss up to the mire and the dirt starts coming up. Take a cup, the old Indian proverb says, and whatever it is full of will begin to spill when you shake it. A man is like a tea bag. Put him in hot water to see what really is inside him. God puts us in those situations. Not so he can see what's inside us. He already knows. But so we can see. The tossing of the waves of the sea. The stormy sea is a wonderful metaphor for filling our lives with distractions. Whether it's social media or sports or even our own family who we love, or education. These things, after a while, calm down and there's emptiness left. We need something longer. We need something eternal. We need something that doesn't take my peace. I need something that doesn't take my peace. I need something greater than my boss and his generosity. I need something greater than a spouse who shows me love and every now and then does not. I need something greater than my children who sooner or later will leave and fly the coop. I need something greater than the weather that's constantly changing. I need something that gives me peace, that's grounded and eternal and is unchanging and is beyond my grasp to lose. What is that? Jesus himself said, I give you peace that the world does not give you. And since we are human, we lose track of that. 
We need to gaze upon His face and His wonderful transcendence through the Scriptures, through His people, to regain that peace, to regain that anchor in our lives. Have you lost that compass? Is yours going a little whack? Seriously, you can do that as a believer too. What do I need to do? Recalibrate your compass. Resync your GPS system to Him. And you do that sometimes daily until it starts to move you in the right direction. Where you unconsciously do what Aristotle had said. A good man is not one who does good. No. A good man is one who habitually does the good. And that doesn't happen overnight. It happens by constant practice. Constant discipline. The Buddhists tell us that the main focus of life is to find a release from dhaka, dhaka suffering. And how do we release ourselves from suffering? By disconnecting ourselves from the world, from money, from power, from sex, from career. But when you disconnect yourself from life, you also disconnect yourself from relationships. And when you disconnect yourself from relationships, you disconnect yourself from the one thing that makes life meaningful. Love. This is a paradox within the very center of Buddhistic thought. I've talked to many Buddhist monks at the highest level. And they tell me they admit that the very center of Buddhism is the removal of the self because they don't believe there is a self. But then who is the one who's pursuing the removal of the self? It's a contradiction within a contradiction. You see them meditating. Tibet is in turmoil. Asia is in turmoil. The political system and on a personal level as well. They have some of the highest levels of sexual trafficking in Tibet, in Asia, than anywhere in the world. There is peace, but it comes from the one who transcended all, who Isaiah calls the Prince of Peace himself. I recommend a book called The Death of a Guru by David Hunt, who himself was a Hindu mystic who wrote about seeing demons in the faces of his gods. If you look at the gods in Hindu mythology, Many of them are not happy people. There's a reason for that. Peace in the Bible, let's go back to that, is shalom. Um, being from the Middle East, I hear a lot of times people tell me, Salamu alaikum, which is Arabic for peace be upon you. In Hebrew, it's shalom, peace. We all want peace. But what does the word even mean? Well, it's a form of completeness, a form of prosperity within ourselves, a tranquility. Peace is not just the absence of trouble. Peace is the restoring of wholeness. Peace is the restoring of what was lost. It's bringing back together what ought to be. That is the biblical notion of peace. And I cannot find peace within me unless I restore my soul to the one who made me. And I may have to do that and die to the self daily. But I want to do it apart from God. Is that even theoretically possible? I love how Lewis put it. God has made us, he says, as a man invents an engine, a car to run on petrol. It would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed a human machine to run on himself. He is the fuel of our spirits we were designed to burn, or the fuel our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. 
This is why it's no good asking God to make us happy without Him. I don't want to bother with God and religion. Then, ladies and gentlemen, you will not be bothered with peace eternally. God cannot give us happiness apart from Himself because it's not there. We're truly foolish, I know in my life I have been, to try to align God to what I want Him to be rather than align me to what He wants me to be. When A loves B, and B does not love A back, A loses something. But when God loves a man, and that man does not love God back, God is grieved, not because God lost something, but because that man lost something of infinite worth. It is the majesty of God that he comes down and makes himself a baby in diapers, Tell us, I love you this much, and I will give myself for you. Now go, be that light into the world. Be the church to the people around you. You know people around you who are suffering, who don't have peace? Go, speak into their lives. Tell them that God is love. Tell them of the good qualities that they have. Bring it out of them. I go to bookstores, and it's an addiction, of course. <laughs> and go to the, the section on uh, growth and personal development. Read through them. I've done it myself. 99% of them will not tell you one thing. They will tell you techniques. How to deal with anxiety, how to deal with suffering, how to deal with crude and narcissistic people. They're wonderful, proven, peer-reviewed techniques. And you should, we should use them. But they will tell you this one thing. Think about life and truth and love and ultimately death. Why? Because the more I think about that, I'm going to get depressed. So let's leave it alone, right? Jesus tells us, love God with all your mind. The Christian theological position is rooted in logic. Think first. Get rooted in the eternal. Anchor yourself in it. Then you can use all these other techniques, whatever they are, to ground yourself in Him and become a better person and change your world using the gospel, which is not limited, by the way, to John 3.16. I close with two short poems, stories. One is from Augustine, one of my favorite authors. And he says, imagine at the end of your life, you stand before the eternal gates of splendor, the celestial city. And God tells you from inside, you hear a voice. Welcome, my child. Welcome. I will give you your deepest desire of everything you've ever dreamed. Power, wealth, freedom, even peace of mind and a good conscience. Nothing will be forbidden for you. Nothing will be impossible for you. I will give it all to you on one and only one condition. You will never, ever see my face. Augustine asks us to consider, would you take this offer? Well, if you deeply love God and you want that depth of the relationship, all these others are incidental. They mean infinitely nothing compared to His face. That's what we need, that relationship. It starts with Him and it builds up with the people around us. We're not made to be alone. We're made to to love and growth in that area. And finally, I read about an interesting gentleman in 1871, Horatio Spratford. 
He was a prosperous lawyer, a businessman, an entrepreneur. Yes, you can do that as a Christian. He was very prosperous in Chicago, and he bought up multiple properties on the lakefront. He was a deeply committed Christian. He had four wonderful daughters. The Chicago fire struck and wiped out almost all his properties. He was devastated. And then, a few months later, his family decided to take a short vacation to England to go see Dwight D. Moody, by the way. His wife, Anna, and the daughters went on ahead of him due to some business conflicts. And their boat collapsed into the sea 40 years before the Titanic went down. It was the largest cruise ship that ever went down after that. He lost his four daughters. All of them died except Anna. She survived. He went back and traveled at that particular point in the water. And then he began to pen these words that are inspired and used by Christians since that time. He wrote as he lost his precious daughters. And he thinks about it. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like seas billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. How could he say that? If his peace was rooted in his business and in his money, he couldn't. If it was rooted only in his children, he couldn't. Because he can lose all of that. And we will lose all of that. But his peace was grounded in the Prince of Peace, who will restore that peace for us as we slowly turn our eyes from the temporal and look to the eternal, from ourselves to him and the things he has promised us. I struggled with many people who say they have peace. But on a deep level, who can possibly have peace unless they're grounded in the truth of reality? And that only comes from Him. Choose the world and lose God. Choose God and you gain both. Amen.